we're winding down this study called Intersection. And we've been looking at three big points, talking about the collision of identity culture and the desire to control. And we've gone through a historical uh, synopsis of what has kind of set this up. And I think tonight what we're going to find is that it is something that uh, is not going to go away anytime soon. So we've been using this particular um, uh, thing to start with. And we are at the end where we're talking a little bit about uh, the postmodern world as we're entering into that. We're looking at some difficulties that are not going to be resolved, I think, maybe in my lifetime. Certain, uh, and it's um, the equality crisis, the ecological crisis, and the economic crisis. Um, what we find is that the pandemic that occurred in 2019 kind of uh, somehow energized a lot of this and uh, it was already there uh, based upon what we've been looking at. But we said that in the pre-modern era, what we have is a kind of a centralized a set of authority figures, either in the church or uh, the king. And then the Reformation comes along, the Renaissance and Enlightenment. And in the modern era, with the development of industry and the scientific revolution, a lot of things have changed. And uh, scholars really don't know exactly when postmodernism specifically began, but it's close to the 21st century. Uh, that uh, it begins to take on a life of its own. And then uh, nowadays, some of the language that is being used is called post-postmodernism, which we won't get into. But I thought what we do to get started tonight is uh, talk for a moment about postmodernism and some of the difficulties uh, since 2019, especially when you combine postmodernism with uh, the pandemic, there is a lot of um, tension between democracy and autocracy. Uh, what is the role of the state in all of this? Is there a point where it gets too big? Um, and then there's, with a lot of the developments in our world, um, a lot of surveillance and personal data collection more than ever before. And of course, uh, this has changed a lot of things, and that is now, especially since the pandemic, uh, people that were going into the office are now working from home, and that's changed the dynamics. And of course, we all saw the change that it occurred in education when the pandemic first hit. Uh, also, what we're seeing currently is uh, some of the inflation uh, that we have seen over the Biden presidency, but um, the ongoing tension of inequality is present as well. And it all kind of bubbles up into um, this postmodern authoritarianism. That's where we're gonna land uh, in a few moments. But uh, maybe we can talk a moment about postmodernism. So this is a term that began in the latter half of the 20th century. And it is really a rejection of a lot of established traditions, 
um, and accepted narratives. So let me give you one as an example. So maybe your parents told you that uh, when you were dating, uh, you were not allowed to move in together until after you're married. Well, that narrative that came through um, this, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, began to change quite a bit. And what we have seen is the value system, especially of younger people, is, uh, is that almost all of them are moving in together before they get married anymore. So why is that? Well, it's the idea of rejecting the accepted narrative. In other words, you shouldn't live together before you get married. Well, why? Who says so? And that's kind of the attitude of postmodernism. It's kind of um, questioning and sometimes rejecting long-held beliefs and value systems. And um, it becomes much more individualized. I'm going to do what's good for me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And with that comes a lot of questions about universal truths. So um, the tension becomes really between, um, again, an authoritarian type of statement like the Ten Commandments. These are the commandments that everyone should keep versus kind of an existential uh, type of uh, look, outlook on life. I'm going to do what I feel is right to do. Well, that can create a lot of difficulties. And with that, what is one person's truth is another person's, um, uh, you know, abil uh, ability to, uh, to get along in this world. So, you know, when, when that type of mentality um, infests, let's say, business, if, is it always the bottom line is the most money the company can make for its constituency, uh, its investors? Or do we take into account uh, the needs of workers, the, the wages of workers, uh, the condition of the workplace? So if the bottom line is always, hey, we owe it to our investors to always make the most money we can possibly make, that's where the inequality um, aspect comes in. We're going to try to keep your wages low and your benefits low. And of course, what we have seen toward the end of the 20th century is I think pensions is an unheard of thing now. So when my dad worked for 35 years for the East Ohio Gas Company, he, he has a pension for the rest of his life. You don't see that type of thing because that um, is a cost to the company. And what it does is it tends to um, always try to maximize profit rather than trying to have a uh, co-relationship between employer and employee. So having said that, um, the next thing that is interesting is how post-modernity and religion come together. Uh, there is also a movement away from a more literal interpretation of the Bible because of science and sometimes because of rationality where people are saying, well, that just doesn't make sense. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me 
why they did that then. And it certainly doesn't make any sense why it is something we should do now. So post-modernity would suggest that uh, what we understand about religious beliefs and spirituality have become more individualized. And it's kind of based on individual experiences, which is fine uh, when we think about coming to Christ. It is an individual experience, but it's also a communal relationship when we think about uh, Christ's church. So having said this individualism is on the rise, what gets difficult is how do you form values uh, based upon individualism? So that's kind of the tension. The other thing that is difficult is we are more connected to the rest of the world than we ever have been. So to learn about other people's cultures and other people's religions gives a lot more options to other people when they're exploring spirituality. What happens though, and I think this has been especially true in uh, American Christianity, is <clears throat> religion and churches is simply another consumer choice. It's not really looking for a community anymore. It's, do they have the best music? Do they have the best children's program? Do they have whatever? Am I proud to be associated with this group of people? and so forth. So this becomes difficult because now people are kind of choosing their religion based upon uh, their own existential decisions. It's not something that in previous years was an accepted narrative that you would then join to. So one more slide and then we're gonna get into something else. So along with post-modernity uh, religion, comes post-modernity authoritarianism. So Stanford University back in 2021 had a, a freedom in the world assessment. And their conclusion was there was a sharp acceleration in the global decline of democracy. Uh, in other words, when we think about democracy and freedom, more and more people in the world are experiencing less of it, not more of it. And their assessment was that fewer than a fifth of the world's population now live in free countries. So four, four fifths of the world's population is some type of autocratic, authoritarian, uh, sometimes communism, sometimes uh, a mix of socialism and something else. So the question is, why is this happening? And that, it, that's a question that this author, Ben Rhodes, tried to tackle in a book called After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. And here's his thesis. He said, first is the excess globalization, the excess that is found in capitalism, the greed that is found within um, um, modern um, businesses and so forth, and it has exploded inequality. In other words, uh, it's not so much about where in the world um, and what type of government, it's more about those that are in power taking advantage of those who have less power, okay? Second, he uh, said that uh, the rise of disinformation 
enables the control of the masses. So you remember when Pilate made this statement to Jesus, what is truth? Little did we know that that three uh, word uh, question, what is truth? In other words, as complicated as it was back then, it is far more complicated in our world because we don't know what is the truth. So you have a particular network that tells you this, a different network that tells you that. You know what I'm saying? So where are we? Who can we trust with the information that has been given to us? So that has set us up. And there was an ebook that was released not too, too long ago by Brian McLaren. And he did a Zoom call with the church talking about what he calls um, a second pandemic. And it's different than what you might think it is, but it ties in with where we're at and some of the, uh, the information that I've just mentioned. So we're gonna watch that, but before we do, is there any questions or comments that you might have? If not, I think no. it'll make a lot of sense um, if, if, you, if, if we wanna start this at this point. Okay. There's Brian McLaren. Um, he's, he would be considered a progressive Christian and social activist. And his books are kind of geared along that line. Here we go. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another of our, you know, ongoing series of guest speakers that we've been bringing into our church um, for our Grow Adult Enrichment series. Uh, this week, we have a very, very, very exciting treat for you all, which is um, Brian McLaren. He's a an author, an activist, a public theologian, and just a, an absolutely wonderful representative of the church and kind of our local, our local superstar that we get to bring in every now and then. So very pleased to have him with us. Um, he's here to talk to us um, about a very troubling and at times a very heavy subject um, of the recent rise of authoritarianism, its intersections with Christianity. Um, and I wanna kick us off by reading really quickly a page out of his new ebook called The Second Pandemic. So it starts like this. Most of us probably remember when we heard the first reports of a strange new disease, a novel coronavirus later known as COVID-19. In the months since we heard of it, it has affected us all. It has killed too many and it isn't done with us yet. Meanwhile, another dangerous pandemic has been spreading and too few of us understand it. The first pandemic, COVID-19, is caused by a virus that spreads primarily through breath from person to person. It usually infects the lungs, but it can quickly spread throughout the entire body, causing multiple organs to fail and leading to death. The second pandemic also spreads primarily through breath, breath in the form of words, spoken words together with the residue of words on paper and screen carry this pandemic from ear and eye to brain. From the brain, this infection controls the entire body and through each host body, it reaches out to control more and more. Large group gatherings, rallies, for example, are prime methods for both pandemics to spread. The first pandemic of COVID-19 may cause fever, discomfort, and weakness, sometimes leading to long-term debilitation and death. 
The second pandemic can also be fatal, but before it kills, it fills its host with a feeling of power, supremacy, invincibility, euphoria, and belonging. Simply put, when people catch this pandemic, it feels like the most wonderful, meaningful, and fulfilling experience that has ever happened to them. The name of the second pandemic is authoritarianism. Brian, thank you for being with us. I would love to hear your thoughts on this rising struggle that we're facing um, and our role in it as people of faith. Sure. Well, first, uh, Wesley, it's always great to be with you and always great to be with this beautiful congregation. Great to see your smiling faces and uh, welcome to all who will be joining us uh, through technology later. Um, I, uh, in January of 2016, there was a Republican uh, primary debate. Some of you remember when there was a long line of people stretching across the stage. And that night I said to my wife, I think that guy Donald Trump is gonna win. Uh, and at that point, a lot of people were still thinking that he was kind of a joke. But I said, I think he's gonna win. I think he knows the secret combination to a certain part of the human brain. Um, and uh, I, I called a uh, psychiatrist friend of mine or psychologist friend of mine, uh, or I emailed him and I said, could you um, start sending me anything you can uh, that you feel is psychologically valid that will help me understand uh, Donald Trump and his unique power? I think what it was that impressed me the most uh, was that Trump would humiliate, mock, insult his opponents, and then within days, they were supporting him. Uh, and I just thought, this is unprecedented. This is really a strange amount of power. So my psychologist friend started sending me all these articles, and I put them away in a little file in my uh, computer. And then uh, I bumped into another friend who is a neurologist, and his, his specialty is really how the brain functions. And I asked him the same question, and he started sending me information. And uh, it led me in a number of different directions. Some of you may have seen, I, I wrote a, a little ebook on bias called uh, Why Don't They Get It? How, understanding Bias in Others, uh, Overcoming Bias in Others and Yourself. Um, and so bias was one sort of track, but the other track was this reality called authoritarianism. And uh, it turns out that in the aftermath of World War II, uh, European intellectuals were uh, around all across Europe were asking the same question. And the question was, how could the Germans do this? Because everyone thought of the Germans kind of as the smartest Europeans. I mean, they wouldn't, the French never would have said that out loud, right? But there was the sense that the Germans are super scientific, super rational, super analytical, uh, deep religious tradition, you know, German uh, Christian scholarship was considered the envy of the world. And so all of these, uh, a, a number of scholars started exploring the question, how could this happen to, to Germany? Many of you have probably heard of Hannah Arendt and others who began writing about the spread of authoritarianism. And of course, Hannah Arendt had both the example of Stalin and the example of Hitler 
to look at and she started noticing similarities between them and, and others, Mussolini uh, and others. Uh, uh, meanwhile, some Americans started getting interested and um, uh, they started publishing, you know, actual research on, on uh, authoritarianism. I, I, I wonder if you could just show me by quick show of hands, uh, how many of you, you have ever heard of the Milgram experiment? Anybody hear of the Milgram experiment? I bet when I describe it, some of you will, more of you will remember. The Milgram experiment was done at Yale by a researcher named Milgram. And uh, what they did is they invited people in and uh, said, we're doing a test on reading comprehension. We're doing a test on education and learning. And so we're going to ask you to give a quiz to another uh, volunteer. Uh, you'll be sitting in this uh, little cubby and they'll be sitting uh, next to you and there's a wall in between you. And um, whenever they, you ask a question, whenever they get the right answer, that's good. If they get the wrong answer, you press this button and this button will administer just a small electric shock. Right. So, um, you know, the person who's organizing the uh, experiment has a white lab coat and a clipboard and looks very official. What the person taking the test doesn't know is the other person who they think is another volunteer is actually an actor and a kind of conspirator in the experiment. And so what would happen is um, you'd be instructed as the participant, the first time a person gets a wrong answer, you press a button. Next time they get a wrong answer, you're asked to turn up the voltage on a little knob and press the button again. Uh, and then if they get a third wrong answer, you're told to turn up the, the button a little bit more. So you can imagine your partner saying, ow, you know, ow. And then each time it turns up, the, the yell, the, the scream gets louder. And what shocked everyone in the Milgram experiment is what a high percentage of people would keep turning the, the dial up as long as the guy in the white lab coat told them to, they would keep turning it up until the person stopped even answering the questions, presumably because he or she had gone unconscious. So I remember reading about this back in college and then started to see, oh, the Milgram experiment was in this flow of research on authoritarianism. Well, uh, it, it so, so happens after Donald Trump won the Republican primary and then won the election, uh, suddenly people started paying a lot of attention to authoritarianism uh, again. Um, and uh, it is a fascinating body of research. I think it is deeply significant theologically. Um, I think for all of us who identify as Christians, there is so much for us to reflect upon uh, in, in the study of authoritarian, authoritarianism, especially because right now, white Christians seem to be the most susceptible to authoritarian leadership. And this becomes a special cause for self-examination among, uh, among Christians in general, I think of all races and nationalities, but I especially think us American Christians have a special obligation to grapple with this subject of authoritarianism. So I'm gonna give you a quick, uh, quick definition. Uh, it's very, very simple. Uh, after you hear this definition, I promise you you'll be able to remember it because it's got four parts and 
and they're in it. As soon as you hear them, you say, oh, yes, that's very, very obvious. Um, and then we can explore some other questions. I'd like to talk a little bit about theology and authoritarianism. And then um, we'll open up for questions and, and comments and discussion. So four characteristics of authoritarianism. First, if you can understand that authoritarianism, simply put, is a process of centralizing power. Um, but it centralizes power in either an individual or a party or a cabal, a, a group of a network of people who align around common interests. And here are the four primary characteristics of authoritarianism. First, fear. Authoritarian leaders almost always, uh, and maybe we could even say always, identify an enemy to make you afraid of an enemy who is becomes an existential threat to your safety and your existence. Um, and now here's what's interesting. The enemy doesn't even have to exist. Uh, the, or the enemy can be completely blown out of proportion. Uh, in fact, the best enemy is not really a threat. If the enemy makes up a tiny minority so small that they couldn't be a threat, they're even a better enemy to make uh, for authoritarians to use to make you afraid, because if there aren't many of them around, you can never go talk to one to find out if what the authoritarian is telling you about them is true. Um, and so first is fear of a real or imagined enemy. Uh, uh, and uh, of course, you can think back in history to different authoritarian groups and the enemies um, that they identified. Uh, some of you who are my age or older uh, might remember from yourself or from your parents uh, the McCarthy hearings. And you, you remember the, the fear uh, that Joe McCarthy spread was the fear, the Red Scare, and the fear that there was a communist uh, hiding behind every bush. Um, again, it didn't matter if it was true or not, uh, that fear spreads. You might remember reading uh, uh, about the Salem witch trials and, this, and, and uh, you know, and the Salem witch trials were a classic case of identifying an enemy who didn't actually exist, but you could imagine this uh, enemy would exist. And not only, you know, we know about the Salem witch trials, but uh, witch hunts and witch trials sp were spreading across Europe for a couple of centuries. Uh, and in fact, Protestants loved the witch hunts better than anybody else. Uh, pro is pro uh, the witch hunts happened before Protestantism began, before the Reformation. But as soon as the Reformation came, Protestants latched on. And the, the provision of an enemy, it fulfills a deep psychological need in people. You might say our biggest fear is not actually an enemy. Our biggest fear is our friends turning on us. And when you provide an enemy, you give all of the friends a reason to unite with each other against the enemy. So you can see there are amazing benefits that, uh, that you get from an enemy. If you're ever interested, there's a, a Christian playwright and one man and an actor who does either a one man or a, a two person show uh, his name is Ted Schwartz, and the show is called I'd Like to Buy an Enemy. And uh, it's a great show uh, because a guy comes into a store and says, I'd like to buy an enemy. And from there on, 
uh, you just feel that this little parable is unfo unfolding, helping us understand how we actually love to be afraid and we love to have an enemy. So the first is fear. Second characteristic of authoritarianism is division. Now you might say, hold it. I thought that we're uniting people around fear of a common enemy. Exactly. And the greatest common enemy is an enemy who is among us. So if I can make you be afraid that if you aren't with us, you're with the terrorists, to use a George uh, W. Bush phrase. In other words, to say, we should be afraid of each other. Any of you could turn out to be a part of the red menace. Any of you might be in league with the devil. Any of you might be a closet Al-Qaeda sympathizer or ISIS sympathizer. Um, if, if we can make everyone be afraid, not only of an enemy out there, but of afraid of not being part of the group of people who are united against the enemy, uh, uh, then uh, the authoritarianism, the, the, the authoritarian leader or party or, or cabal has enormous, enormous power uh, based on that, uh, on fear plus division. And eventually division, uh, the division of the society is based on loyalty to the regime. So if you're not loyal, you now are as bad as the enemy, if not worse. Uh, so in Germany, uh, the Jews are made the great enemy. Uh, every problem is blamable on the Jews. And you may not know this, there's a deep connection between this and pandemics. All through the Middle Ages, a pandemic sp spread through, the Black Death and a number of other pandemics spread across Europe. And the Christian majority of Europe would typically blame Jews for the pandemic. Jews are contaminating our wells. Jews are spreading this pandemic. And so then there would be mass killings of Jews or Jews would be banished from one town and forced to flee to some other area. Um, so you can see how when Hitler brought up the Jews, there was a long history of, of fear of the Jews. And then here came the, the real question. Are you a Jew lover? Um, are you a supporter of them? Because that makes you then an enemy of our own. So you've got the first two characteristics, fear and division. Um, third, um, is distortion or distraction from the truth. Uh, there is just so much amazing evidence of this when people study Stalin and Hitler and the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia and uh, any number of other authoritarian, uh, powerful authoritarian movements. Um, what we need to do is have a ministry of propaganda that is constantly spreading either complete lies or partial truths or even changing the story from one day to the next. Because if we can make you confused enough and distrustful enough so that you won't trust your own eyes and your own ears, if we can make you confused and distrustful enough already when you're anxious because of the enemy you're afraid of and the division that you have to take a side in, if we can keep you destabilized, not knowing what to believe, then when the leader or the party or the regime says, believe me, trust me, I'm the only one who's telling you the truth, uh, then the, the authoritarian ruler has a powerful way to tighten up uh, unity and, and, and 
bring the ranks together. So, uh, so distortion or distraction from the truth. There's a famous saying among people who study uh, authoritarians. They cover up crime with scandal. Uh, so authoritarian leaders love to have scandals. They love to have rumors. They love to have controversy, controversies because if you're talking about the scandal, you're not noticing the crime. Uh, and so there's this all this sort of uh, sleight of hand. Pay attention to this while I, this hand I rob you, right? And uh, this constant distraction from the truth or distortion from the truth um, is, is, it's not an error. It's not sloppiness among authoritarians. It's actually a, a feature of how they gain power. Distortion, distraction from the truth. So we've got three. Uh, just mentally see if you can remember them. First uh, is fear. Second is division. Third is distortion or distraction from the truth. And then the fourth is suppression of dissent. Um, this is one of, the, one of the reasons why the free press is such a threat uh, to authoritarian leaders. Obviously, they compete with the leader for telling the truth. Um, and um, the leader doesn't like that. So, you know, Stalin originally called the press the enemy of the people. Uh, and so hatred of the press is very, very typical of authoritarian regimes. Um, uh, and dissent is seen as such a threat to us and to our well-being because of the enemy that we've got you afraid of and the division by which we're cleaving society. Um, if you have any dissent, you'll be put in the enemy camp and uh, you'll be punished, you'll be banished, uh, terrible things will happen. And when you're part of the in-group, uh, you believe everything they say about the out-group. But then when you dare to question it, when you dare to question what's going on, you realize, I will be the next one to be put in the out-group. So there's a certain kind of tipping point of suppression of dissent where people become afraid to express their dissent. When you have those four characteristics, when you have, remember, number one is fear, number two is division, uh, number three is distortion, distraction from the truth, and fourth, suppression of dissent. Um, then you have what's called an authoritarian attempt, and uh, meaning somebody's making a move to gain authoritarian power, unaccountable power. Uh, and that authoritarian attempt will continue. They'll keep up the pressure until they're either defeated or they experience a breakthrough. And the breakthrough can happen from any number of reasons. Uh, but something happens that gives the authoritarian leader the breakthrough. Um, after the authoritarian breakthrough, then the authoritarian is in control. And then the everything changes. Um, now you're in a new, a new ball game. And now you're surviving in an authoritarian regime. And um, that's another whole subject uh, that, that we could talk about. But everyone changes when they're in an authoritarian regime. Uh, people stop being able to speak freely. Uh, all kinds of new social patterns uh, develop. Uh, and of course, millions of people live, ha have lived and do live today under authoritarian systems. So that's the basic picture. If you remember those four characteristics, centralizing power through fear, uh, division of society based on loyalty to the regime, distraction, distortion from the truth, 
and uh, suppression of dissent. Maybe the last thing I'll say is that uh, religious communities become great centers of authoritarianism um, because of one of the really, really disturbing findings of the, in the post-war era, the first wave of research that was done and has been tested and retested and retested. And here's the finding. About 30 to 35% of people in every tested culture test high on authoritarian followership, meaning if you put them in a condition of stress, a condition of uh, anxiety, shame, worry, uh, insecurity, if you put them in a position of stress, they will feel euphoria if a powerful authoritarian leader comes in and gives them reassurance. Now, about 70% of us, we don't buy it. But about 30% of us, it's, it's nobody's fault. This just seems to go across cultures. It seems to be a characteristic of the human psyche. Uh, and I'm sure it has survival value in, in the past. 30% of us are most susceptible to authoritarian leadership. And uh, so what all that authoritarian leaders have to do is find 30% of people out there. Well, when you're not in authoritarian times, when authoritarianism isn't being forced on people, where could authoritarian leaders go to find an authoritarian following? And now can you see how religious groups could be the place where you go and you have somebody yell at you and scream at you and threaten you and maybe even tell you that God is an authoritarian who loves to torture anyone who dares to disagree. Can you see how that context would attract people who are attracted to authoritarianism? And can you see how if you attracted people through religion and then a political leader were to come along and attract those religious leaders by making deals with them, um, suddenly religion could be deeply complicit and authoritarian structures. Now here's where life gets interesting. Um, because uh, you look at Jesus and Jesus comes on the scene and is obviously a very strong leader. Um, he attracts huge crowds. Uh, but what's very, very interesting is he doesn't tell them there's an enemy out there, you should hate that enemy. He says, no, if, if somebody calls themselves your enemy, you still love them because God loves everybody. Jesus refuses to build his community based on hatred of the other. In fact, he looks at the people who are being excluded and shamed by the religious authoritarians of his day, and he invites them to the table. He says, these people are human beings too. I'm not ashamed to be associated with a prostitute or the tax collector or the leper or the sick or the poor. I mean, he breaks down the whole structure, the, the whole tactics of authoritarianism. You, it, it, as soon as I say that, those of you who are deeply familiar with the Gospels, you'll be thinking of other examples. Remember, he says, I, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. Um, he doesn't say, I'm the greatest and I always want to be the greatest. He says, listen, I'm leaving and it's better that I leave. You don't need me. The Spirit will be with you. You'll do greater things than I've done. The Spirit will guide you. I'm not essential. 
you, you can, you, I'm giving you something now. I'm, you, you can bring my spirit. You can have my spirit, but you have power. He's not trying to hoard all the power. He's disseminating the power. Um, you look at Jesus as an anti-authoritarian leader, and it is truly, truly striking. Um, by the way, if you ever want to accuse Jesus of authoritarianism, I think you would do it over his stories and parables about hell. You would say, yeah, Jesus has all this talk about hell. That's typical authoritarian talk because authoritarian leaders always threaten the re rebels with torture. But isn't it interesting that when Jesus tells these parables about hell, it's not, it's not the poor people who get sent to hell. It's the rich people. In other words, it's the people with power. So I've come to believe that Jesus doesn't teach about hell. Jesus unteaches about hell. Everything he says that we think is about hell and it has this whole Christian doctrine behind it, I think is Jesus' reversal of everyone's assumptions as a way we would say of deconstructing all of their notions. And, and you ultimately see this when Jesus is hanging on a cross and, he, and he's dying and he doesn't say, I'll be back and get the bastards who did this to me. But he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um, put all that together. And we have a very, very interesting time. Um, obviously, I believe that Donald Trump is a classic example of an authoritarian leader making an authoritarian attempt. I think he has uh, found the 30% of the population who uh, loves authoritarianism and the people who are submitted to those 30%. So if you have an authoritarian husband, you'd better believe he's putting pressure on his wife to vote as he votes. And if you have an authoritarian father, even if his children are in their 30s or 40s, he's putting the pressure on them. And they know that if they don't vote the way daddy votes or grandpa votes, they will not be welcome at Thanksgiving dinner. And so I think, I think what we've seen happen in the, in the last uh, five years or so has been an authoritarian attempt. And it's not over yet. Uh, and this authoritarian attempt could continue um, for many, many years. And what that says to me, it says two things. One, the church has grossly failed in teaching an anti-authoritarian message, just as the Christian church has failed to teach an anti-racist message. By and large, the white church has certainly failed to teach people, uh, that, uh, to, to inoculate people, to, make, to help people understand the dangers of authoritarianism, which I think are deeply, deeply taught throughout the scriptures. You can, we can talk about this if you like. Um, but I think it also means now that our churches have to wake up and get busy on what we failed to do in the past. And that is to teach people the radical anti-authoritarian gospel uh, that Jesus taught. Uh, and uh, let me stop there. And I don't know, Wesley, if you want to uh, start the ball rolling or we just can open it up to everybody. Uh, I'm actually just going to open it up. I want to see people's thoughts because I'm, I'm curious to know what, what really jumped out at everyone. Just go ahead and unmute yourself and ask. <clears throat> no one has a question. Come on, guys. <laughs> I don't have a question, but when you talked about the Milgram experiments, Brian, um, I thought of Zimbardo, Zimbardo too. 
That's um, the prison experiments. And so, yeah, that just blew my mind. I, I have a question since we're talking about Milgram that I can bounce off. Is that okay, Brian? Yeah, great. Actually, were you going to say something in response to Reva? I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. So um, I've heard that there have been some kind of redoings of the Milgram experiment yes. where you can see the person you're shocking yes. or the person who's instructing you to shock someone is no longer wearing a white coat or, you know, there's all these different variables that they've changed that have yeah. produced kind of less fall in line, follow the leader responses. Um, you know, obviously suggesting that, you know, there, there, there are certain symbols of power, certain levels of, of yes. encounter with whoever you're, you're hurting. Um, how do we, do, do you have any ideas on how we can kind of unmask in that way in a societal sense yeah. that, you know, could, could bring us into direct encounter with the people who were injuring by following directions? Yeah, it's, uh, well, this, this is, uh, what a great question, uh, Wesley. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why having the courage to speak out wisely, I mean, I think this can be done well, and this can be done in ways that actually make things worse, but, but having the courage to differ graciously, those are, I think, the three key words, courage to differ graciously with uh with falsehoods for example that an authoritarian regime puts out um uh see here's the problem if an authoritarian leader lies and you start losing it and you start insulting the leader and calling anyone who follows the leader a fool what does that make the followers feel we're being attacked now when you love when you feel euphoria about submitting to a strong man and you're being attacked, what does it make you do? It makes you cling to the strong man even more. Um, on the other hand, if you're just silent when the authoritarian leader lies, then the message that gives to people is, see, everybody's falling in line. Um, and so you, you need to find a way to speak up. And there, there's a whole, uh, well, I think that's why it becomes very, very important for, and in fact, it's why I think the, um, you know, the, the freedom of speech is such a powerful, uh, I, I don't think that the, the real democratic value of freedom of speech is to let people say any stupid thing they want, uh, but in, in the name of freedom, obviously they have that freedom, but the freedom to speak up against an authoritarian leader is a very, very precious freedom because it allows one person to stand up and do what one of the Milgram uh, adaptations is that you do a group of people, they're all in different cubicles pressing the button and turning up the dial. And then one person speaks up and says, hey, this is crazy, I'm not doing this anymore. And as soon as one person speaks up, all the other people have the courage to speak up. But finding the person with the courage to go first is, is difficult. So this says to me, we have to have the courage, um, we have to have the courage to, to speak up and we have to teach people how to speak up. By the way, authoritarianism doesn't just happen in governments, it happens in families. And, and so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of us in this circle, either in our own lives, our own families, you know, where maybe there was sexual abuse going on and one cousin or one niece or one person in the larger family finally had the courage to speak up and tell the truth. And you find out that a whole lot of people had known about it and let it go on, right? So it happens in families, it happens in denominations, uh, it, it happens in congregations. So this courage to speak up becomes 
one of the things that I think we teach. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many examples of this. As soon as you start thinking about this, go back and read a book like the Book of Esther, and you realize the Book of Esther is a book about authoritarianism. Uh, and uh, so many things going on there. You read the Book of Acts. Uh, the, the disciples are getting arrested, not because they're Christian, but because they're speaking the truth in an authoritarian context. And you realize that part of what was going on in, in Judaism was that the temple was bought and paid for by the emperor, the Roman emperor. Um, and uh, so the temple elite were submissive to the authoritarian leader. Uh, and suddenly you realize, oh, what's going on in Jesus' day is ha what happens when some of our fellow Jews are submissive to the Roman authoritarian leader. So all of that's all of that's going on. I, I'm not sure if I answered your question well or not, Wesley, but that that would be just one example of I think uh, how how some of those follow-up studies to Milgram sort of give us some ideas of, of what to do. And I hope um, you maybe, wrote down. Yeah graciously because that's one that you should have written down anybody who's got something so. <laughs> how do we learn to be gracious yeah. in the face of this that's my biggest struggle i i feel um from a place of privilege that it's my responsibility to try to speak truth yeah. uh regardless and i've been pretty well known for being outspoken yeah. um but to to do it with grace yeah. um, is sometimes I, I just feel like I have to walk away. Yeah, yeah. Well, Nancy, is it, you're Nancy, right? Yes. Um, Nancy, um, first of all, thank God that you speak up. Like, like let's, let's be honest, all of us make one mistake or the other more often. Either we speak up a lot, but we don't do it with grace, or we're very polite but we never speak up, right? So yeah. thank God for people who speak up, even if they sometimes go a little bit too far. Um, uh, because it, that, that courage seems to me to be very, very hard to come by. Um, Nancy, let me tell you a quick uh, story. Um, I, when uh, the word got out that I was doing some thinking and writing about authoritarianism, I got contacted by the Women's March. And a couple of leaders of the Women's March are friends of mine. And they said, hey, we're doing this thing called Digital Defenders. Um, could you, um, you know, would you help us? So I learned what the Digital Defenders are doing. And this is just so brilliant. Um, they recruited a group of people who like to spend a lot of time on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all the rest. And here's what they said. We've got people radicalizing young people. Yeah. Um, they're, they're turning young white men into white supremacists. They're yeah. turning uh, you know, young white women into white supremacists. They're, 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 they're turning people into, they're recruiting people for extremism and they do it on the internet. Well, if you find any of these people, first you find the extremist recruiter, then you find the troll of the recruiter who's calling him names and cussing him out and, and, and making fun of him and mocking him. And so what they started to realize how this is playing into an authoritarian dance is that if, if a person's recruiting 
and is sounding very rational and concerned about safety and concerned about America and all this, and somebody's attacking him, then you think that the person being attacked gains credibility. Yeah. So what the digital defenders do is they go online and they find the person doing the attacking yeah, and true. they teach them to do uh, two or three things. Let's see if I'll remember. First thing they teach them to do is agree with the attacker. Say, you're like, let's use an example. Mm -hmm. um, President uh, Trump's uh, uh, inauguration crowd was much bigger than President Obama's, <laughs> which was just a fal falsity, right? So I was there. <laughs> I know better. So, so uh, somebody says this. Another person says, you're a blankety blank, blankety blank, 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 attacks them, right? Um, the, the digital defender comes on and says, I agree with you um, that facts matter and that we can count the number of people who are at events using photographs. And I agree. Um, I think it's important for us to stand for the truth uh, and without insulting people who are only believing what they've been told. Something like that, you see? What they do is yep. then they come along and they add some sanity because the people who are being influenced by the recruiter, they need a reasonable, compassionate voice because here's the deep deal. One of the things that authoritarian leaders know how to do, they know how to make you belong. Yes. And, and in a sense, if the only people who respond to the authoritarian leader who's giving you belonging are attacking them, you think, well, I don't want to be like them. They'll attack me. So that's where the, the graciously comes in. Mm -hmm. I, find I, a, yeah. find a way to agree and then find a way to treat your opponent as a human being. Yes. And so often when I I will ask people, why do you believe that? Yeah. What, what leads you to that? And too often, I think folks are just like not willing to engage. And at that point, I just, um, but I like the idea of, you know, supporting people, other people to amplifying people who are speaking the truth. Um, Nancy, um, you might be interested, you've maybe seen this already, but uh, I wish somebody might even be able to find the link and put it in the chat. But there is a TED talk by the daughter of the uh, uh, Westboro Baptist Church. Okay. Um, I'm, yes. forgetting, I'm forgetting her name now. Right. Um, uh, anyway, she tells the story of how she was brought out of that extremist religious uh -huh. authoritarian group. And here's what it was. It was a group of people who just patiently, it took a long time. Yeah. They just patiently kept treating her like a human being. Yeah. And, and not being freaked out. Do you have it, Wesley? I believe her name is Megan Phelps Roper. That's I'm right. going to put yes. it in the That's chat right. right now. So if anybody wants to watch that later, it's right there in the chat. For awesome. You. Thank you, Wesley. Sorry, continue. Sorry to interrupt. That's great. Further questions? Question I see the team Rody is unmuted and Chris is raising her hand. So um, who wants to talk first? <laughs> well, I was, I was just going to share that um, I, I remember Many years ago, uh, Ross Snyder teaching some of us that uh, the, the easiest way to form a group is to have an enemy. Yes. And, um, you know, and unfortunately, 
the way to develop a church is to have an enemy. Yes. Um, that's not a very strong way to develop a church, but many many churches get developed that way. And especially as we look at the fundamentalist or the evangelical churches, um, we can see that um, they spend an awful lot of time preaching about those enemies. Um, and it gives you a sense of belonging then because you've got an enemy out there that's after you. Um, and I, I just think that's helpful to, to look at that. Um, yeah. Yeah, boy, what an amazing thing. And when you bring that insight, uh, John, to the Bible and you go back and you think, for example, um, uh, well, a great example would be for the Jews, who would be the ultimate enemy? It's those dirty Egyptians for how they persecuted us. Um, well, guess what? When you read the book of Genesis, you find out that before the Egyptians ever enslaved any Jews, Abraham and Sarah enslaved an Egyptian. And so you find the Bible is always messing with these easy, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Who are the bad guys? The Moabites. And then they tell the story of Ruth. Um, who, are the, who are the bad guys? The Ninevites. And then in the story of Jonah, the Ninevites repent in, in a way that, you know, nobody ever could have believed. Uh, so this messing up of the enemy line right. is, is so powerful in, in the Bible. Okay, I'm gonna stop. Uh, Would you try to explain to how the 30% seem to seem to So I wanted to leave just a, a minute or two. Uh, they have some additional questions that, but I, um, but I thought the, um, the bulk of the presentation uh, that Brian McLaren gave was very apt as a way of kind of summarizing what we have been looking at over the last several weeks, as well as what we're observing within our own culture as well. So, uh, and hello, uh, Brenda, glad you could join us. Um, so I wanted to see if you had some questions uh, before we close off tonight uh, about his presentation. Uh, anything that you wanna make a statement about? Any comments? Anyways, um, hopefully that was enlightening for you. Yeah, because I thought it very helpful and uh, it makes a lot of sense um, when we are observing even the push toward these midterm elections that are up and coming in November. Uh, we've already had some primaries even uh, yesterday and some of uh, so it's it's a fascinating observation in seeing where all of this has led and uh, as we continue kind of in the post-postmodern experiment, as we think of that existentialism that kind of was founded toward the end of the 20th century, here we are, we're entering into another phase in, in the 21st century. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, the next three weeks, and then we're going to be done. We're going to talk about the equality crisis, the ecological crisis, and the economic crisis. Uh, and that's going to be an ongoing thing uh, as we uh, continue to the, the, uh, 
the years ahead in the 21st century. So, all right, here's your last chance to ask a question or make a comment. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, the, the, the some of the explanations of authoritarianism, which is which I thought was helpful, you know, in explaining some of that, because that is obviously a pretty big, pretty big deal these days. Yeah, and even though it looks like you know the the last authoritarian leader may not be on the scene for the next election, um, it, it certainly he could he, he could have an influ indirect influence, pretty significant indirect influence. Yeah, on that, and and um, and, it, and it goes back to you can you can also talk about think about other authoritarian leaders, obviously today and in the past, and uh, so I, th I thought that was that was helpful in trying to. To explain some of that piece of it, yep. why why there's a reasonable number of people, just from the just just from simple math, why there's a, a pretty high proportion of individuals who support that. Yeah. So. Well, when you think about it, thirty percent uh, that he was talking about is a pretty high percentage. When you think about the influence of. 30% of the population that might be enamored by someone who seems to have all the answers or is the authority figure because that's the way your brain is wired type of thing. So right. I didn't realize that. Yeah. It can also be pretty scary when only 50% of the people vote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, so that 30% becomes more critical. Well, you can see how that can become a majority of, uh, you know, uh, I know a lot of people say, well, what does my one vote do? And, you know, I'm not going to bother and that type of thing. So if you reduce down that 70 percent by people that are either too apathetic or lazy to to vote, then that 30 percent has even that much more power uh, in, in the in the election. So. Oh, and it's actually more than that because he talked about the people that those the that thirty percent influences. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Was this talk based on a book that he's recently written, or just from his podcast? It's um, this was a Zoom meeting he had with the church. So when I was doing some research for tonight, I ran across it. I I thought it was very helpful. Uh, if you go to uh, brianmclaren.net, I think it's a .net uh, website, he, he, there's resources. And what he was talking about today was not a published book, but an ebook uh, that yeah. is yeah. downloadable type thing. I don't know that it's very long. I don't think it's like a book in that sense of the word, but, um, but that material is available. In fact, if you um, if you look this up, so let me let me go back here for a second. I'll see if I can uh, see the name of this. Uh, I forgot to put it down. Um, I think what if you do a um, where did I go? There it is. Um, if you just put Brian McLaren uh, perspective on authoritarianism uh, in Google, it, this link will come up to this um, to this Zoom meeting he had with this church. And uh, at the beginning of the that meeting, 
the host mentioned this ebook, and I can't can't remember exactly what the title of the ebook is. I think it was called the Second Pandemic. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so, um, anyways, that's one way to look for it if you're interested. Okay. Any other comments? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even before Hitler showed up. They, they had a sense. Huh? They had a sense that they had to get out of the country even. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. So Beth was talking about some of her relatives who left Germany even before Hitler came to power because uh, they had a sense that things were going astray within the country and, and that type of thing. So, Well, that's what happened when my grandmother's family came over, except it was with Kaiser Wilhelm. Okay. And of course, as you know, Esti uh, came over in the 70s from Yugoslavia, and I, I'm not real sure that her dad ever kind of gave them the full picture of why they made that move. But maybe this type of thing kind of helps put some things in perspective in terms of maybe some of the fears that he had, you know, I don't know what, do you think that might be so, Esti, or? So what Esty said is her dad always anticipated that something was going to happen once Tito died um, and, and he died in 86. So they came over in the mid 70s in 1973. So he anticipated, because Tito was getting older, that held a lot of various um, nationalities that made up Yugoslavia uh, together, held those people together that he anticipated what eventually happened, right? And it broke apart. As soon as he died, the country broke apart. Yeah. Yeah. So, hmm. All right, well, we'll leave it at that uh, for tonight and um, we'll come back and we're gonna be talking on Sunday in this series, Soul Stirrings, about uh, the sacred earth. And that, um, and I want you to kind of think a little bit about places that you have been that have stirred your soul, okay? That'll kind of help you kind of anticipate uh, what we're gonna study out of the scriptures in, in reference to our connection to creation. Okay. So, all right. Hope you have a good evening. Right. And, and Thank we'll see you. Soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.